HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentesana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School. This idea of family style and made-from-scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city. We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery. Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history. And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, we consider Will Horowitz a naturalist, which all fishermen and foragers should be. Whether you have a legacy of French-trained chefs or a traditional Jewish delicatessence, um, which Horowitz actually has both on, on, on both sides of the family, um, he argues we as people must strive towards a sense of living alongside nature. And much of his culinary education is based in symbiosis, whether it's serving food saved through heritage techniques, that's a smoking, curing, fermentation um, at Duck's Eatery, or stocking us with permaculture provisions at Harry and Eider's Meat Supply, Horowitz makes you know, a, a wonderful array of this really fascinating you know, ingredients for the modern cook. Um, he also makes a really mean pastrami sandwich, and you may have heard about this smoked watermelon ham, but past that gimmick, there's a stratagem in his sustainability, or where it teaches us how to dry, cure, brine, dehydrate, preserve, stocking our pantries for recipes on either side of the growing season, as seen in this wonderful book, Salt Smoke Time. Well, welcome to the show. Cool. Thanks for having me. Um, th- this is literally one of the, the most dense books I've read in a while, and <laughs> Often for an interview, I read a book cover to cover, and I have to admit I haven't because I've only had about two weeks with it. And it is something that you dive into, and 
kind of obsess about, ruminate about, even before you ever experiment with, because I, I want to read this little thing at the beginning of the book. Um, there is a caveat that says the information offered in this book is based on experimentation and experience. However, the author is not a trained professional in food safety, fermentation, or any other field. Um, neither he, not the publisher, is responsible for the consequences, blah, 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 blah. But it's those first lines that the book is based on experimentation and experience. I mean, you can't write a book like that without this. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, that that's kind of how we do things. And um, it's definitely important that we write that in the get-go of a book like this. Um, I mean, you know, Ducks Eatery, for years, we had the... I think we used to call it the 24-hour rule. <laughs> Explain to me. That, I mean, that's far past the fi- five-second rule. What is far 24? Far past the five-second, but not far off. Um, uh, we were in the early days of Doc's Eatery. I mean, we were just fermenting, curing everything we could get our hands on. And we had an apartment upstairs. Um, and God knows what happened there. One of them we used to live in. And uh, the other half was just for fermenting meats and stuff. And... Uh, and cheeses, and it was okay. Well, you know who comes back downstairs the next day. That was the twenty-four hour <laughs> rule, and luckily we both did. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is in your blood, though. Your family immigrated from Hungary, and you had these grandparents who were both in the culinary field. Mm-hmm. Um, French trained chef, Jewish delicatessens. What was your home life like in regards to food, or were you happy to see one or the other grandparent because of these cuisines? Well, it was, it was kind of funny. So, you know, that's all very true. And my, my grandmother also, I should say, was very, very by the book, like French cooking on my mother's side. And they grew up in Orient, Long Island. My grandfather was a fisherman out there. And they were very, very classic. Um, so always you'd go there and there'd be, you know, these bluefish and chicken pâtés and fresh breads and pastas, all sorts of things. And then my parents' side, my father's side was a little different. They were like real old school, like... Uh, Southern Hungarian, uh, Bronx, Jewish, delicatessen, like pickling and fermenting like uh, beef tongues and, uh, you know, sauerkraut on the uh, fire escape out back. And then to throw a nod into it, my father was um, a cardiologist. So it was a weird mix of all that and then a lot of really shitty 80s tofu dishes Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) thrown into the mix, like all the stir-fry, fake chili things you could kind of imagine. So it was kind of a funny childhood, but, uh, you know, these are all kind of influence. We all have our influences that kind of sort of push us to different directions. It wasn't until I started going, really spending a lot of time outdoors and studying the primitive stuff that kind of got me into this. My favorite photo in the whole book is UF, you at age 13 harvesting algae. Because I don't know if you realize at that time that you were not only a forager, but you were also a fisherman and potentially a naturalist, uh, you know, before or during your bar mitzvah. Yeah, well, you know, we had, I mean, my father, I grew up with a a healthy dose of outdoors. Um, He had been teaching me kind of, you know, basic orienteering and, and botany when I was a pretty little kid. And um, and my, my grandfather on the other side was fishing and being out in the water. And so, um, you know, I mean, on my, my mom's side is where, I mean, the youngest kids of the family each year would have to be the ones to go collect rockweed and different seaweeds for clam bakes every year. And, you know, those were memories that we dreaded or clearing out like uh, algae in the pond or frogs or whatever it is. 
But, you know, now I just relish it. And when I think back to, you know, my exposure to that, because it created a situation where when these things circled back to me, like studying seaweed and all these, you know, and algae, that they were completely familiar and normal. Yeah. But did it feel survivalist back then? Did it feel Hunger Games-esque? <laughs> <laughs> no. And, and you know, and, and, you know, for me, that's been, that's been a, a passion, you know, it's a... You know, I used to put myself in a lot of crazy situations, but there's never been any survival situations forced on me thus yet. Yeah. So more so than is this mushroom poisonous or not? Yeah. I mean, when I was on, um, you know, I, when I was in high school, like uh, like most chefs, I just caused a whole lot of ruckus as a as a teenager, and uh, I actually got sent to one of these wilderness uh, primitive survival schools as kind of a retrieve from uh, having get sent to like juvie or somewhere, and. Uh, and so there we were forced into like, you know, bow drilling and hand drilling and all these different things and, and carrying around like a, uh, you know, tarp every day that became your, you know, transfer from your backpack to your A-frame at night. And uh, that, that taught a lot. And after I left there, I kind of just dove into another decade of studying like primitive survival and putting myself in the woods and into kind of gnarly situations and just learning kind of how to use my own two hands. Well, there are a lot of informative guides within this book, like a mushroom guide, uh, which is very necessary because there are a lot of those doppelgangers. <laughs> uh, those of wild edibles from you know woodlands and meadows, including acorn, sassafras, nettles. You mentioned the Japanese knotweed. Um, and there's so many other things from black walnut to ramps and dandelions and spice bush. But at what point did you take the skills of being able to identify and maybe forage for those things and turn that into a formative education, say at you know Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> well, actually, believe it or not, I went to Naropa for the uh, writing program there. They famously have the Jack Kerouac Institute of Disembodied Poetics, and that's really what I was going into. And um, you know, it wasn't until kind of following those guys and, and seeing where they all went, which was essentially just dying of drugs and alcohol. <laughs> um, that I uh, that I went to like Buddhism and permaculture and things like that. Of course, afterwards I opened up a bar, so I guess I didn't do too <laughs> well. Um, but you know, I uh, I got into that stuff from the permaculture, and so my desire was to learn to live off grid. And that, when I was a kid, that was what I wanted to be able to do. Whether I wanted to actually go out there and do it or not that second i'm not sure but i want to have the skill sets to be able to do that that was important to me and after college i was kind of just a ski bum and i needed to make money and cooking was a thing so it was all those kind of paths coming together that made it the norm for me to use those skill sets in the kitchen and make it into a real thing and you know anyone that's gone into mycology or you know foraging things like that it's a it's a you know, you start at the very basics, and that's what this book really is. It's the very basics of it. We didn't want to get too advanced and definitely don't want to kill anybody. Um, but, you know, every year that goes by, you identify a new thing, and you just becomes more and more serious whether you know it or not. Let's define what permaculture is, um, and let's use the North Atlantic Inlet as a frame for that. Sure. Sure, like within examples, you're saying? Yeah. Well, you know, it's... it's, it's um. You know, that would, you know, be with our moisture level and our, our and our weather here. But it really comes down to something even more specific about that uh, than that. It's about just really observing where you are and, and really specifically down to the, 
you know, 10 square feet we're in right now down to the 41st, you know, square feet we're in right now and, and just keep going larger and larger and really observing and seeing what the natural cycles are and symbiosis are within that piece of land. I thought it was really interesting to me when you know, I was in Naropa, I was taking a survival, one of the survival courses there and I thought it was a pretty advanced course and, and, um, I thought it was going to be some crazy thing where, you know, they're going to drop me off like half naked, like up in the Yukon somewhere in the pile of snow. And instead, the guy had me just say, here's a, a half acre of land. I want you to spend the next six months just studying it. And I was super bummed at the time because I was really <laughs> looking for that, yeah. that, big, that big survival trip. And it was a real learning lesson to me because you, know, you could have that same period of time, if not infinite amount more on a foot by foot piece of land and learn enormous amounts about what's going on there and what's naturally taking place in terms of the patterns and different organisms and parasites working together symbiotically. And that's the model to me of permaculture. It's how do we create systems influenced by what's going on naturally and a part of those things to create a z almost zero input system. Well, you so poetically talk about the forest floors of mushrooms, the hard shells from the bays, and fly fishing the flats, which seem like three distinct things to three di different people, but mm. you think of that as a similar set. Well, I mean, part of that's just me having fun. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, I, I, to me, that's just, just, just being a part of nature to me. You know, that's just being outdoors and, and something that's in sync with, you know, kind of my life force. What naturalists have you admired in your life? <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, I grew up um, studying a lot of transcendentalism and things like that. So all of like the Emerson Thoreau type stuff. Of course, now I go back and read that and it's like the most wordy like material. I have no idea what's being said. Um, and from that point, like I, that led me into a lot of kind of beatnik era stuff when I was at Naropa. So people like Gary Snyder. Um, became huge, huge influences on me. And through that, a lot of Japanese naturalists and poets like Basho and typical things like that. Um, but that, that became a huge part. Later on, a lot of the you know permaculture stuff resonated a lot within that as well. So. But who is J.P. McMahon to you? Oh, J.P. McMahon. J.P. is an awesome guy. So J.P. is... Um, is actually he's in town this week. He's um he is a great 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 chef from Galway, Ireland, and he actually puts on food on the edge, which is a wonderful symposium. He gathers tons of great chefs, and really tries to bring him into Ireland and show him the nature, you know what's going on there between farmers and nature and cuisine, and he's just a good friend over the years, and he's really gone as a way to curate a lot of speakers that I think hit a lot of notes that we talk about in this book when it comes to sustainability. And he, so that was nice for me. Yeah, I mean, he, he writes in such a wonderful forward to yeah. you that this book is an example of that living alongside of a culinary being with the world of wanting to know more about what the natural world can give us in order to sustain us in the future. Mm. Um, I, that encapsulates not just you as a person, but maybe the fear that we all have going forwards in this crazy world, um, that it won't be there for us. So how do you, as a chef here in this huge metropolis, uh, do things that inform people? Um, I'm not saying this is the apocalypse or Armageddon <laughs> or anything, but make them realize that we have to do something for there to be something else. Uh, well, you know, I, I try not to guilt trip on anyone. 
But, um, you know, I just kind of try to do what I do. So, you know, in, in the restaurants, what we do is more so based on survival for ourselves. And the way we do it is a way that I think becomes a model for environmentalism at large. And what I mean by that is using one of these older heritage practices, whether it's fermenting all these cooking processes or whether it's just simply going out to our farmers and trying to use all their scraps along with our own or either other restaurants and trying to turn a lot of these different undervalued foods into something that's worth more. And that's survival for us as a business. That's how we're able to keep Ducks Eatery accessible. We, I think we started the restaurant serving, you know, goat necks and duck tongues and, you know, the ends of greens and anything we could get our hands on, really, that we could afford at the time. And, um, and so that, that model of survival, to me, is really the most important one that I'd like to spread as best I can. But you don't like calling it scraps or peasant food or a poor man's meal at all. <laughs> well, I mean, listen... We call it that because that's what it currently is. But, you know, I mean, these are all made-up terms. I mean, listen, everything is. But when it comes to food waste, and this is such a huge part of what we all talk about as chefs these days and writers, it's a new term. It didn't exist past, like, a couple hundred years ago. In the big scheme of things, this is very, very, very recent. (laughs) And so, you know, all we're trying to do, and one of my biggest hope at the end of the day is for people to kind of look back in time a little bit and not go back to be hunters and gatherers or anything like that but just to just to get a little note of time and 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 relevance and where we are in the world and and the timeline of humans and say hey maybe we might have a couple good ideas back then let's uh let's try to reconsider a couple things and how we go about forward well let's talk about the trifecta of great ideas that have stood the test of time and those are salt smoke and time yeah i mean how are those foci point? How is that trifecta of things um, become something that you orbit around? Well, you know, I got, you know, I was always a chef, and then separately I was a barbecue chef, and and those worlds kind of combined a bit at a certain point. The barbecue thing was more of a hobby for me, and that slowly invaded a lot of my normal food as a chef. Um, you know, I think the the key factor to so many of those to those three points is, is really comes down to patience and that challenges a lot of the way that we want to operate and cook and eat as people these days. And so how do we, you know, maybe it doesn't take as many man hours to make sauerkraut or something like that, but it takes a lot more time, (laughs) you know, or same thing with smoking foods. You don't have to be there for it half the time. But, you know, it's, it's going to take a little bit more patience to get the job done. And that's wouldn't, kind of a different philosophy. Wouldn't you love to list active hours on, on certain things so people can actually, <laughs> at least in this cookbook, say, you actually really n- need 15 minutes to do this, but it might take, you know, three months to six months to ferment. <laughs> but it, that, that point of activity, yeah. like, you do have to wait so long for what we call heritage techniques or preservation methods Mm -hmm. and why is it you think that people don't have the patience for this well i think it's a understanding of 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 how this stuff works to me so yeah something might take a long time but then you also have it for a long time too so to me it comes down to how do we set up our kitchens and our pantries and our in our own homes and that could be for a professional kitchen 
to even my kitchen at home. Honestly, we have a couple sauerkrauts and kimchi going all the time, a big bucket, you know, preserved eggs. And then we go to the market on about maybe 20, 30 bucks a week and we get fresh stuff to, to make with it over some steamed rice. And that's, that's kind of the typical food. <laughs> and that's that model of, let's say, just stocking our pantries and then you're able to kind of live on a tight budget while eating fresh nutritional food is one that, you know, is pretty applicable. And, and not only that, but it's pretty much the story for almost every single culture in the world of how we got here. And note again, this is experimentation and experience talking. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm alive still. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break and then see if Will comes back with us. You've been listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moin, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Andrew Friedman, and I'm the host of Andrew Talks to Chefs here on HRN. Every week, I interview a diverse cross-section of the best and biggest names in professional cooking. Give a listen and get to know all about the inner lives of chefs. You can find Andrew Talks to Chefs wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Will Horowitz. This wonderful book, Salt Smoke Time, as well as two great eateries, Duck's Eatery and Harry and Ida's Meat and Co., um, both in the East Village. But yep. let, let's talk about ducks because I kept on writing it incorrectly. It is not possessive. <laughs> it is not plural. It is named after somebody. Yeah, it was actually named after somebody. And, um, you know, me and my sister, Julie Horowitz, um, we started it in 012. Actually, originally moved back here and we helped open up uh, Spin New York, the ping pong club. Oh, I remember it. Susan Sarandon. She yeah. was our partner there. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and after that, and she was actually, my sister was living in a small island off Madagascar at the time, and we kind of dragged her back here. And uh, from Spin, obviously, we could, you know, had to go back to like being real chefs at a certain point <laughs> and not playing ping pong all day. And we opened up Duck Seedry in 2012 uh, together, and then Harry and I does a few years later. But uh, she kind of runs the restaurants. Uh, and um, and she also did all the illustrations for this book, which are just stunning. Yeah, um, they're based after like those Boy Scout field guide things. Yep. But uh, having someone with that kind of design acumen, because mm. she's also a, a cake designer. You she's know. a crazy, 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 crazy cake designer. Like it's the type of art form that I could never actually do. Like it's it's the 
it's so exact and meticulous and stunning. It's like, oh, here's a hundred thousand dollar chandelier. I'd like to be in a cake for next Friday. No problem. Yeah, <laughs> That's, but, it's crazy. But it, it makes me think about the the visual look of certain fermented things because fresh cabbage is that much more alluring to the eye than sauerkraut for many. Um, how do you make fermented foods or this concept of something that's aged over time, been manipulated, be as beautiful as nature itself? Um, you know, it's 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 brutal. Um, you know, we live in such a visual world, obviously, as chefs now. So. Um, and, you know, even for writers too. And so it becomes extremely difficult, I think. And, and, you know, listen, the job of the chef was always to be a storyteller in a sense. We're trying to tell the story of this incredible ingredient that was, you know, grew upstate or in Long Island or somewhere. We're trying to tell the story of fermentation or how this came about. It's all storytelling. And that role has been expanded because... Now we have to kind of like put a couple like, you know, dandelions on something and trick people into eating <laughs> shit. Yeah, well, I mean, Harry and Eider specifically, I love going there for, you know, your pastrami, your smoked beef brisket. And there were visual indicators that it was done well. I look for a smoke ring. Uh, what other indicators do you look for for the perfect pastrami, for the perfect beef brisket, for any restaurant using these kind of techniques? Well, it's, it's you know, there's so much crazy nonsense out there in the barbecue world um when it comes to what's perfect and what's not um it's a crazy world i've i've only done a little bit competition barbecue but i found out pretty early on that it wasn't the world for me because you know you have a lot of rules that are made up by the same people that are uh, injecting briskets with a fake beef shoe phosphates and fake butter to, to make it taste more beefy, you know? So it's like, it's a real fucking mess out there in terms of what are the rules. And at the end of the day, it's just about creating the right environment, moisture, temperature, in this case, smoke, and really breaking things down, obviously, to where you want, knowing when smoke is going to really permeate into something and when you're just kind of blowing your own horn. And at the end of the day, just making something really fucking delicious. You could have said blowing smoke up your own ass instead of the horn thing. So (laughs) you missed out on that poetic pun. But it is. And you are such a transparent person because when you walk into Harry and Ida's, you see the provisions on the walls. You see the beef brisket. And you also see eels. And I equate what you did with eels back then maybe to what you're doing with smoked watermelon ham. Maybe it's part of this visual appeal, this this kitschy hook to bring people in to enjoy other things, is it? Or is it something I mean, else? Listen, every year or two we get something weird. Either we're going to be known for, you know, smoking eels or, you know, pastrami or goat necks or who knows. But uh, watermelons has been interesting. I mean, that was like a real shock for a 600-square-foot restaurant in the East Village. I think we got almost over 120 million views on that thing online. So it went pretty viral and uh we never really experienced anything like that and that was really visual shock but um what's done is open up some really interesting avenues for us and you know the the pastrami thing is great and i could sit here and tell you about how delicious it is and it is delicious it i is. just i can i literally shot a some sort of russian tv show like four hours ago on it and it's great but the truth is is it's not that sustainable you know, we get small amounts and we try to do the best we can. When you're talking about larger places in New York City going through 20, 30, 40, 50,000 pounds of brisket a week, 
That's not sustainable, you know? You know, people the, see the 55-gallon buckets and think that you're doing a lot just because it's in mass. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, not even, it's not even the same, you know, conversation. And, you know, for us, it's not that we want to take those things away. We just want to reduce the amount. We want to shift the focus of using these old-school techniques of smoking meats and smoking fish and just try doing the same things with fermenting, curing, and smoking on vegetables and fruit. And it's been interesting. And some things have worked and some things haven't worked. But why would we not want to try something like that? And when you're living in a world right now where there's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars being pumped into, you know, Frankenstein-looking processed fake meats that, you know, look like they bleed at vegetables, then... You know, the idea of doing these same old techniques we're doing on pastrami and things like that to a watermelon don't sound that crazy to me. And at the very least, they're worth trying. When you look at the preserving techniques in the book, it doesn't indicate that they're for meat or vegetable, for fawn or flora. And I kind of love that because you can cold smoke anything. You can, you know, quick pickle anything as well as meat, which I've had in many different cultures. The pantry, though, is more akin towards vegetables. Yeah. You have salt curing from capers to brine lemons and chive salt. You have quick pickling. Uh, one of my favorites, which I must do, is violets. Um, <laughs> that, that just sounds like it's, such a wonderful flavor the, profile. The violets and the dandelion. If you ever made dandelion honey, it's honestly, it's fantastic. It's just that, like, you know, that's a lot of back work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Picking those things. But I mean, a lot now. of it is. And it's for a point because you also make these jams out of knotweed and rhubarb, which are invasive. So oh. you're stocking your pantry not just to extend what you have accessible to you, but you're trying to make nature or the environment have more access to be able to grow other things by taking the invasives out. I mean, there's there's never been such thing as a invasive species or animal that we like to eat. That just doesn't exist. <laughs> so to me, the answer to all that stuff has always been just a good recipe. And we've tried endlessly to figure out some things. And some of them, unfortunately, have been big wins, like not weed. That's an easy one. And I think the two months we tried figuring out how to soften the calcium shell on a green crab was probably in vain. (laughs) What are some of the other failures of the invasives? And maybe we'll just workshop it right now. Oh, my God. We failed so many times. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, we've had... I mean, to be honest, when it comes to the, we've had a lot of failures in general when it comes to fermenting all sorts of things. And not failures, you had a lot of experiments. A lot of experiments, <laughs> and, and I, you know, I'd say for most of the invasive stuff, I mean, that green crab one was the worst because we spent a lot of time doing that. But um, God, you know, figuring out what to do with massive amounts of flounder roe. That was a big one. I never thought we'd able to be able to do something that was actually edible with that. There's been so many different, like, from beef skins to leftover uh, stock bones to all sorts of stuff that we've been playing around with for years that are tough. We were chatting about eel not too long ago, um, and I love that you have pr- propagated, uh, you know, that fin fish uh, to New York City because it, it, it surrounds us. It's yeah. been here for years. But you told me your favorite stock you've ever made is a smoked eel skin broth. Oh, my God. It's unreal. It's absolutely unreal. One of the best stocks you can make, 100%, is smoked eel skin. It's not going to be from the bones. It's going to be a little bit from the head. But it's really just from that whole skin, from you know, 
cocktail to gill. Yeah. Why, what is the flavor? Pro- what makes it so profound? It is just so much depth and so fatty and so rich. It's like, I mean, it's just pure gelatin. And, I mean, we used to make, God, we've made so many things out of it. I mean, from using it as, you know, its own kind of almost braising liquid for a lot of meats to vinaigrettes. I think there was a couple months where maybe, I want to say we were, Maybe sending it down to um, maybe maybe Jeremiah over at, at Contra for, I think they were making some sort of vinegar or something out of it, I forget. But um, yeah, there's been a lot of people that have taken it over the years, and it's so good. You have such great recipes in the book because it's utilizing this pantry, but they, they are distinctly different than what you'd expect because in the pantry and all the preserving techniques, it's these singular things, and then... You have these plates composé. Um, using that eel skin broth, you do a matsutake porridge, which is beautiful. Yeah, matsutakes are great. But you are a very visual thinker when it comes to putting a dish out in front of somebody. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me about the recipes for the growing season and how they relate back to building out your larder. Well, I mean, for us, a lot of that stuff is, you know, the recipes, to me, they're a suggestion. The bulk of the book, which is this lifestyle and this idea of doing it, and and you know, and then that goes along with our own kitchens too. We don't teach our chefs in our kitchens recipes. We're very specific about that. We teach them how to taste, feel, and think, you know, on their own two feet. Um, when it comes to you know things like the springtime recipes in this book, you know, the idea of this pre- of preservation of making your own vinegars, as ma- you know, all these different things are to create that second layer to the farmer's market and what we think of seasonal cooking. So the idea of seasonal cooking in this scenario isn't that I'm going to go to you know Union Square or go to the farm to find something to cook this week. It's to find something that's going to go really, really well with all these plethora of different things that I cured, cured you know, fermented, smoked, whatever it is, preserved you know, maybe weeks back or months back or a year back. And that's what creating that second layer of that calendar for a cook should be. Um, you know, we, we're not going into, you know, winter cooking nothing but like, you know, starch vegetables. Yeah, but it's not the old adage of what grows together goes together, where you do have those examples of the smoked trout and trout lilies. Um, uh-huh. There are things that are kind of disparate in nature that somehow cohes on a plate. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I always stand by the grows together, goes together. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's cool and all, but, it, you know, it's I guess it's poetic, but a lot of things go together. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about, actually, one of my favorite things is uh, the duplicity of clams, uh, pickled razor clams with a roasted clam vinaigrette. Yeah. Um, talk about layers. Well, well so, I mean, that, and that's always been, you know, something that we strive to, you know, work with our chefs and cooks on, which is, you know, how do we just really take something simple and diversify the flavor without adding so many different ingredients to it? And how do we really bring out the full spectrum of flavor from something as simple as a clam. And, you know, I, I say that, but, you know, there's nothing simple about clam to me. I mean, and that's the other thing for us is that we kind of got pegged early as a very meat-centric uh, restaurant because of, co- of a couple dishes. But, you know, really me and my sister grew up, um, I'd say more of our, we had more of a family birthright to seafood. And we grew up clamming and digging clams and stuff like that. And so that was a pretty important part of our lives. So, you know, just being able to appreciate, you know, the giant cohogs and stuff we have here for as beautiful as they really are and not just purely breaded fried chowder clams, um, you know, is kind of awesome. 
I also see that in Shad Botarga. I grew up on the Hudson and learned how to fillet a shad at a very young age. And yeah, we grew up with some shad too. And some, you know, it's been more unfortunate as the years pass. Yeah, but, um, yeah, that's awesome. That's an awesome thing. That and uh, there's a dish that uses shad botarga, duck liver butter. And what is the main feature of that dish? Oh, it's like corn, right? Yeah. Sorry, there's like. I know it's it's not. I don't mean it to be a quiz, but (laughs) sour corn. It just—I'd never heard of something like that before. Yeah, I mean, sour corn was uh, completely common uh, all over um, from north to south. Unfortunately, you don't really see a lot of these those types of things held up, um, except for down south now, and really a lot of Appalachian style food. But those were everywhere traditionally. It was just that um, you know, I'd say. There's more stubborn Southerners out there that kept their day good job keeping their traditions than us. And so, um, you know, every year we pickle and we just real basic. We just most of the time just salt and water, a bunch of corn and all the uh, all the uh, husks get smoked and they get put in these giant, you know, uh, nets in a hairy net is. And we use that half for tindling and half to flavor our hot sauces. And yeah. And they're great. I mean, it's corn, so people at least uh, are willing, I assume, to approach that. But when you serve them something like smoked squirrel Brunswick stew, what uh, what is someone's willingness to approach? Um, you know, they might not be into that, but like, I mean, corns are. I mean, listen, I mean, a lot of the name of the game here, and obviously a little bit for me. You know, I'm gonna put in recipes in there of like um, moose nose and locust. It's going to be me having a little bit of fun, but at the same time, a huge part of sustainability right now is based around diversification, obviously, and really opening ourselves up to what we put on the plate as chefs, as eaters, um, for anyone. And, you know, when it comes to squirrels, I mean, listen, I'm going to get, I'm going to, people listening to this right now, there's going to be two types of people, that are, and obviously one of them is going to outnumber the other, which is a lot of people are going to be, wow, this guy is fucking crazy he's sitting in a pizza place in brooklyn talking about eating squirrels and then there's gonna be a small percentage of people that probably grew up hunting squirrels being like yeah squirrels (laughs) they are delicious it's like little freaking meat candy hopping tree to tree eating acorns all day and we don't even have to force them they're honestly they're fantastic but um (laughs) you know it's 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 weird for sure but we're comfortable with that. I don't think it's weird. I think it's weird that I now think of squirrels as hopping meat candy. <laughs> but like your smoked goat neck, people love that dish because yeah. they love the meat. But talk about diversification. It isn't just about diversifying what we have around us, but bringing someone to Nepal and serving them this paya. <laughs> um, I think that's such a cool facet of this book because... As much as it is about permaculture of the environment around us, it's about getting outside of ourselves yep. and, and seeing global influence. And just so, being open to it, just trying things. Being, I mean, for me, when I, my first couple of years moving back here was, I'll tell you what, Queens was like my playground growing, you know, when I first got back to New York. And it still is. I wish I had more time for it because just the, you know, bioethnicity and just interesting food that you can find right here in the city you know is unreal and there's so much out there and one one of my biggest pet peeves for sure is when i have chefs in the kitchen tell me that they're you know too scared even to try something or to you know it's like this is what we're all here doing I want to end on this, and it's a big big discussion about monocrops versus symbiosis, but it's really about three sisters, and those sisters are squash, corn, and beans. What is the story behind those siblings? 
<laughs> well, I can't speak too much from the Native American angle on it, but I can certainly, you know, tell you that's a very, I'd say a very primitive and very basic element of permaculture. Obviously, you know, permaculture is a just a made-up word coined in the 70s. This is something that's been going on for an enormous amount of time. And it's this basic idea of, you know, leaving um, – well, there's a couple different ways people do it. Some people are growing beans directly on the corn stalks while the corn is still growing. Some people are just doing it after they take the corn, and they're using that to give the give the pole beans some light while also using, you know, squash as ground coverage. And when you have ground coverage – in small farming areas like that, you're creating another, you know, you're creating more biodiversity because you're creating a whole nother climate system on the ground, which is then in return giving you crops and also more importantly than that, giving shelter more to, to more insects and more life and more topsoil. And so that's really kind of a key thing when it comes to, you know, why that's an example of it. I mean, these days to me, the most exciting thing, you know, and that I've worked on is, uh, is seaweed. And that's the biggest crop that everyone should be talking about when it comes to permaculture because, you know, sustainably farmed seaweed right now is almost zero input. And that's that's the most reckoning one when it comes to permaculture. Is there anything else non-amphibious like that that, that resonates in the same way? <laughs> I mean, we're just at the ground phase of land-based algae as well. And, you know, we know it to be spirulina, but it's so much more. And as as... Saltwater-based seaweed harvesting doesn't really have it has a, it's super nutritional, but you know we like to claim everything's like a superfood that's good, and but is actually doesn't have a huge amount of protein. Land-based algae has an enormous amount of protein per per amount, and even more honestly than most beef and things like that. But you know, to me, it comes down to seaweed and and mycology and mushrooms, and those are those different things that are going to be. Zero input, packed nutritionally, and with the mushroom element, you know, kind of the glue that creates so much symbiosis. So I think we're at the tip of the iceberg in terms of new frontiers of what we're going to be able to do agriculturally with that. And it's all happening within about 500 square feet at Duck's Eatery and Harry and Iders. <laughs> but I love that there is such power and promise coming out of those two joints and coming out of your beautiful, wonderful mind and in this book, Salt Smoke Time. Cool. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Will. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Emmy Cheese for sponsoring Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 
Thanks for listening.